Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It may be found on page 1202 in the Bible beneath the seat in front of you. That's 1 Peter 4, uh, starting at verse 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to tell you about a couple that I used to know. Their names were Eddie and Bonnie Stevens. They were members of the church that I used to serve up in South Carolina back in the 90s. Eddie and Bonnie were pretty good friends of mine. Eddie was an auto mechanic, in fact, and I would take my cars to Eddie for him to work on my cars. Bonnie was uh, just a young woman who had a dream. Her dream was to one day go to Nashville and record a CD. Because Bonnie had a wonderful voice. She often sang in our church and did solos and choir numbers and things of that nature. So you can imagine the distress that it was for me and for the rest of our church family when right after church on a Sunday morning, when I was already home for lunch, I got a phone call. And someone called to tell me that they had had a terrible car accident on their way home, going home from church. They said, come to the hospital. I went to the hospital, and there's where I found out that Eddie had just inadvertently moved over to the shoulder of the road, and when he tried to get the car back into the lane, he went way too far and hit another car head-on. Eddie was killed instantly. Bonnie was still alive, but just barely. When I went to the ER to see her, I remember so clearly she was laid out, tied down, you know, strapped down to the gurney, her head in a halo. She had multiple, multiple broken bones. There was a real question on everyone's minds whether Bonnie would ever walk again. When I looked down into Bonnie's face, she couldn't speak, but her eyes told me she knew that Eddie was gone. And the tears just started to flow. She knew that life would never be the same again for her. She was now a young widow. Never thought it would happen. 
But that's her story of suffering. What's yours? Everyone here this morning has a story of suffering. Or two. Or three. Or more. We're going to talk about suffering this morning. I guess it's somewhat fitting in light of what's happened in our church family. But I want to start off by saying that there are several kinds of suffering. Several different categories. For example, there's the category of the fact that we all live in a broken world. It's a fallen world. And so all human beings suffer the effects of that brokenness. This world is under a curse. It's the curse due to Adam's sin. And that explains everything from potholes on the Daytona Speedway to earthquakes in Haiti to cancer to miscarriages to economies going under and all kinds of other ills that we struggle with. Life in a fallen world. That's one kind of suffering. A second kind, however, is the suffering that happens because of our own sins and our own mistakes. Tiger Woods, we would all agree, is suffering pretty bad right now, right? But it's his own fault. He brought that suffering on himself. And so it happens with us sometimes. Maybe I lose my job because I'm a lousy employee. Maybe I'm sick because I don't take care of my body. Maybe I don't have any friends because I'm hard to get along with. You know, sometimes that's what is the source of our problem. The fact that we've chosen to do things and made pretty bad mistakes that have sort of set our course. And in this letter, First Peter, Peter says, don't suffer for those kind of reasons. Don't suffer because you are at fault. Try not to do that. Then there's a third category of suffering. There's the suffering that you experience because of the sins of other people. Your collateral damage, as it were. You're caught in the crossfire of other people's bad mistakes. I was changing my cat's litter box yesterday and this thought occurred to me. Sin is like a litter box. It stinks and other people have to clean up after it. And maybe that's the way you've suffered. Somebody else sinned and you had to clean it up. That's a third kind of category. And then a fourth and final, and I suspect there are more, but a fourth kind of suffering is the suffering that you experience because you follow Jesus and his teachings. You've chosen to follow Jesus. And that in itself has brought suffering your way. You know, Jesus calls us to carry our cross and to deny ourselves. And those are hardships. But also, faith in Jesus Christ exposes us to persecution by other people. People who don't share our values and our beliefs. And that seems to me to be the kind of suffering that we're learning about here in the letter called First Peter. I'm, I've entitled this series, Fighting for Joy. We've been looking at this letter, the, the letter of First Peter, since the first uh, week of January actually going all, all the way back to Christmas. First Peter was written to believers who were being persecuted. They were pushed out to the margins of society. People who used to love them before their conversion now keep their distance. Some of the Christians were thrown in prison, we're told. Fathers were taken away from their families. Historians tell us that some of these Christians that lived in the day of Peter when he was writing this letter were tortured and killed for their faith. According to Origen of Alexandria, the Apostle Peter himself was later arrested and tried and martyred for being a Christian. He tells us that Peter chose to be 
crucified, head down outside the city of Rome. Now, I doubt seriously that any of us are going to suffer in that way. Physical torture, persecution is pretty unheard of here in our country. Thank the Lord for religious liberty. But many people in this room know what Peter's talking about, about Christian persecution in verse 4. Look at verse 4 of our text that we heard read. It says, they, and it's talking about pagans who live around us, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Can anybody identify with that? Have you ever felt like you've been the object of scorn, the object of ridicule or of abuse of some kind, emotionally, physically, etc.? Then you know what this letter's all about. The kind of suffering Peter's talking about here, mostly in 1 Peter chapter 4, is the kind of suffering that you get because you've chosen to follow Jesus and you've had to carry your cross, you've had to deny yourself, and you've even been the object of persecution by unbelievers. Maybe some of you can relate to this by the fact that you've been cast off by family and by friends because you're a Christian. You've been labeled, right? Some of you, some of you have been ostracized. Some of your old friends don't choose to hang out with you anymore. Your, maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend broke up for you, with you because of your faith. Maybe even your spouse has deserted you emotionally or possibly even physically because you've chosen to love Jesus, you honor and believe the Bible and its teachings. The point is, we all suffer in many ways. And everybody has a story to share. So what I want to talk about with you this morning is how can you suffer well? Doesn't matter which of those categories I was talking about earlier. How can you suffer well? Because I'm sure you know people who suffer and it just makes them worse. Right? Some people, sometimes people get bitter instead of better after suffering. It hardens them instead of making them softer and gentler and holier and more understanding and more empathetic of other people. How can you, though, suffer well? Well, it starts by remembering three truths that we're going to look at right now. It starts by remembering three things. First of all, that suffering is normal. Secondly, that suffering is beneficial. And thirdly, that suffering is a battle. It's normal, it's beneficial, and it's a battle. Let's look at 1 Peter 4 and see how Peter talks about those three things. First of all, he tells us that suffering is normal. It is normal. Look at verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Do you hear, Peter? He's saying, since Jesus suffered, you can expect to, too. So arm yourself with the same attitude, the same expectation that you're going to suffer. If ever there was a human being who didn't deserve to suffer, it was Jesus. He's the son of God. He's perfect. He made sick people well. He made blind people see, deaf people hear. He healed the unclean. He accepted the rejects of society And yet the Bible tells us that from the very day of his birth in a smelly barn of Bethlehem to the day he died on a rough wooden cross outside the gate of Jerusalem, Jesus' life was a life of suffering, a life of affliction. 
You've heard that old spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Well, see, he knows your trouble because he's been there. He's experienced the troubles that you and I have and come through without sin. One of the things that Jesus said was, if they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. In Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul the Apostle says that it has been granted to you. Listen to that. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Can you believe that verse right there? You've signed on for this, you people who are Christians. You've signed on for this. It's been given to you. Not only to believe on Jesus, but to suffer for his name. Not exactly your best life now or become a better you, is it? But it's always been that way for the people of God. Rare and temporary have been those times in history when Christians enjoyed the comfort and the prosperity and the esteem of the world. Sometimes you've heard it said that America is a Christian nation and woe be to us that we've wandered so far away from our Christian roots and people talk about how bad it is that we have to put up with discrimination against Christians and how we have atheists in Congress and how Christians are bashed by the media and how wrong it is that we can't post the Ten Commandments on a public building. Listen, Christianity has always been opposed From the day it began with the death of Jesus all the way to now. And always will until Jesus comes back. Even in those years when there was a broader consensus in America. Of belief in a supreme being. Even then people who believed the Bible and treasured Jesus. Were opposed by the world. Jonathan Edwards is a good example. Many of you have heard of him. He was a famous figure back in the early 1700s during the Great Awakening when the gospel was sweeping through the colonies. But do you know what happened to Jonathan Edwards? He was pushed out of his pastorate because he dared to say to his congregation that you have to be a Christian to take the Lord's Supper. That was in the day when supposedly the gospel was being embraced by thousands of people. Christianity, Christians will always be opposed in this world. Colossians 1 verse 24 says something very interesting. Look at this verse for a moment. The Apostle Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What does he mean by that? I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking. Some people might say, what do you mean by that, Paul? Something's lacking in the... In the sufferings of Jesus, something's deficient with what Jesus did for us? No, that's not at all what Paul meant. He doesn't mean that the sufferings of Christ were somehow deficient. No, what he means is that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Christian life is not going to be the easy life. Get that out of your head. The full quota of Christ's sufferings has not yet been reached. We're still this side of heaven. And as long as we're here and Jesus is there, we walk the same Calvary road that he walked. Put it this way. You're a missionary. And you need to start thinking of yourself as one if you're a believer of Jesus. You're a missionary. 
We ought to be living on a missionary budget and adopt missionary priorities and engage missionary practices and expect missionary hardships. Don't expect it to be otherwise, believer in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5, I think, says it very simply. It says the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. We're there this morning, aren't we? The sufferings of Jesus, his rage against death, his hatred of the curse is flowing over into our lives this morning because of the death of someone we love. Maybe it's already been flowing over into your life before you got here this morning. Something's going on in your body, in your marriage, in your family, at work, at school, in your relationships. And it's hard and you hate it and you want to get out from under it. Do you know what? Do you know what's happening? The, the sufferings of Jesus are flowing over into your life. Don't expect it to be otherwise, is the message of First Peter. Suffering is normal. That's one thing you need to believe and remember if you would suffer well. Otherwise, you're going to be devastated by it. But the second thing that we as believers ought to remember if we're going to suffer well is that suffering is beneficial. Suffering is beneficial in some mysterious way that I cannot stand here and explain. Suffering has benefits attached. Look at verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Peter says, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because, now notice the rest of this verse. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now that probably ought to make you really scratch your head. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And then he goes on to say, as a result... He or she does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Do you hear Peter there? He seems to be saying that there's a connection between suffering in your flesh and getting better in some way. Let's try to break that down a little bit. Because one thing Peter does not mean is that we get to the place in our life where we don't sin anymore. That is not true. We, you and I, will continue to sin as long as we're in this flesh. We want not to, but we will. There is no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven. So Peter's not teaching that you really come to the place where you stop sinning. So what does he mean? Well, two thoughts. One thing that Peter could mean is that, and I wish I could unpack this more, but I can't spend the rest of the time on this. One thing that Peter could mean is that we are so united to Jesus in his sufferings, in his death, and in his resurrection that sin is broken in some definitive way the moment we trust in Christ. And I've taught about this before. It's called definitive sanctification. There's something that happen, happens when you embrace Jesus you're united mysteriously to him in his death, burial, and resurrection so that his death is your death, his burial, your burial, his resurrection to a new life, your resurrection to a new life. And that could mean, that could be what Peter means when he says that we have, in a way, ceased from sin. 
That is, sin no longer defines you if you're a Christian. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Because Jesus suffered and died and rose again for you, you suffered and died and rose again with him to new life over your old sinful past. Does that make sense? That's very definitely one of the things that I'm sure Peter is is getting at here. But let's look at it from another angle because I think both angles are valid. Suffering, says Peter in those two verses, has a sanctifying effect upon you if you look at your sufferings with the proper attitude. Let me say that again. Suffering has a sanctifying effect upon you if you look at it with the right attitude. And that's what we're going to be talking about in just a few moments. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 is telling. Hebrews 5 8 is talking about Jesus. And look at, what, look at what it says about Jesus. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now if Jesus, the perfect son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in his human nature could learn obedience by suffering, certainly you and I can too. And so we learn obedience, we get better, we get more sanctified if we suffer with the right attitude. Because suffering has a way of weaning us away from things of this world. Have you experienced that? Has in your life suffering weaned you away from your old idols? I've told you before about a a bad experience I had in another city. For several years it was just the worst time of my life. My wife and I still say those were our worst years It was hard professionally for me. It was hard relationally for both of us. Our marriage was suffering the effects of what we were going through. But you know what? In retrospect, as I look back on those years, I see that God was weaning me away from one of my idols. I still have to battle with it every day, but it's the idol of success. Because things didn't go well. And God was pulling me away from that old idol, showing me that it's not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe what you're suffering right now is intended for good by God weaning you away from some of your old loves and helping you to treasure him more and see him as the one and only treasure in life. Believe it or not, trials are our friends. Believe it or not, trials are your friends. Doesn't feel that way right now. Doesn't feel that way. But Peter says, you're getting better. You know those verses in Romans chapter 5, right? Romans 5, 3, look at it. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know what? What do we know? We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Hope. Suffering is beneficial. Not only do we see that suffering is normal and beneficial, but in the third place, let's look at what Peter says lastly. If you would suffer well, if you would get better instead of bitter, if you would get softer instead of harder, If you would get more understanding and empathetic of others instead of harder to get along with and more judgmental and more self-righteous because of suffering, here's the third thing. The third secret is to remember that suffering is a battle. It is a battle. Look again at verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Notice, if you will, that word arm. 
Arm yourself. Arm it. That word arm means to man your battle stations. It means to get your weapon out. It means to lock and load. It means to enter the fray. It means that there's a war on and you're called to action. And one of your most important weapons in this war is your attitude, Peter says. The word attitude means thought process or disposition or way of thinking. The way you think about your hardships is one of the weapons in your fight of faith. Time being what it is, I'm just going to really go quickly through these. But what I want to show you is four specific attitudes that you and I need to arm ourselves with about our sufferings. I'll give them to you. I'll show you the verses. You can go back and discuss this with your life group or your family, your friends or Bible study or whatnot. Four attitudes that you ought to be thinking about with respect to your sufferings that will help you to suffer well and do battle in your fight of faith. First of all, think about your new identity. Think about your new identity. Verse 3 talks about this, where Peter says that you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, and so on and so forth. See, Peter says, think about your new identity. That's not you. You're a new man, a new woman, a new boy, a new girl. So think about who you are now in Christ, and then you'll suffer well. Second attitude to have in your battle, think about judgment day. Pardon me. Think about judgment day. It talks about that in verses 4 and 5. And in verse 5, Peter says that they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Could there be any more awesome or somber verse in all the Bible than that one? 1 Peter 4, 5. They will have to give an account to him who judges the living and the dead. See, that'll help you when you're tempted to take matters into your own hands and get vengeance back at people who cause you pain. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day when God makes all wrongs right. When he will set the record straight. You and I don't have to do that. So think about judgment day, secondly. Thirdly, the third attitude to have is to think about the needs of other people. The needs of other people. Get your eyes off yourself and onto the needs of people around you. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then Peter goes on to talk about offering hospitality and serving people. Why does, why does Peter talk about that? Why does he say, get your eye off yourself and onto others? Because it's so tempting, isn't it, when you're, when you're in a hard place to think that everything is about you and people making you feel better and fixing it so you're not in pain anymore. Peter says, love others deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. And then the fourth attitude that I'll mention to have in your battle is to think about the cross. Think about the cross. And I need to elaborate on this one a little more. Look at verse 11. 1 Peter 4.11 says that if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God. What's the next word? Provides. Now, when you read the Bible, you ought to be looking for important words. And this is one of them. When I saw those two words, God, 
provides. I couldn't help but remember Genesis 22. Now, we're, we're not going to play Bible trivia. You don't have to remember what's in Genesis 22 because I'll tell you what's in Genesis 22. Genesis 22 starts off with this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah as a burnt offering. The Bible doesn't tell us what went on in Abraham's head when he heard God tell him that. What would you think if God said to you to go kill your son, the son you love? You would, you would react vigorously against it. I'm sure Abraham said, what? But eventually, through the drama being resolved, he did it. He took his son. Together they walked off into the distance with some servants and a donkey. The wood was loaded on the donkey. They arrived at the foot of Mount Moriah, and Abraham said to the servants, you stay here. I'll take Isaac and we'll come, we're going to go up there and worship God. And so he loaded Isaac, his son, down with the wood. Abraham grabbed the torch and the knife. And together they started walking up Mount Moriah. At some point on the journey, on the hike, uh, Isaac looked to his father, puzzled, and said, Father, you've got the fire, you've got the knife, I've got the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And that's when Abraham said, son, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. They kept on walking up to the mountain. Abraham took his son and tied him down to the beer and lit the fire and raised the knife. And just about when he was going to kill his own son, the angel of the Lord said, stop, wait, don't lift your hand against your boy. That's not the lamb for the burnt offering. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked off to the, in, the, in the thicket. And there he saw a ram caught in the thicket with his horns. God said, that's the lamb. And so Abraham walked over and sacrificed the ram for the burnt offering to God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 22 that Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Peter says, God provides. One day, about 2,000 years ago, God provided a lamb with a capital L for your sin offering. And his name was Jesus Christ. Only this time, the knife came all the way down into the heart of his son. And God slew his own son as a sacrifice for your sin. The question as you suffer this morning is this. If God did that, won't he see you through? Won't he provide everything else you need? It says in Romans 8, 32, look at this verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Some of you this morning are walking through the valley of tears. You're suffering the effects of life in a broken world, the effects of your own sin, the effects of the sins of others, or the effects of the fact that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And God says to you this morning, I'll provide. I provided Jesus. I'll provide everything else.
A few years ago, I went to my mailbox. And in my mailbox was a package. I opened it up, and guess who it was from? It was from Bonnie Stevens, the woman I told you about earlier. It was a CD. Bonnie had, in fact, gone to Nashville and recorded this CD. It wasn't very good, (laughs) but it was her CD. One of the songs on there was an arrangement of a hymn called How Firm a Foundation. The words of that hymn, some of the words are these. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through the fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. My friend Bonnie suffered well. And you and I can too. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Let's pray. Father, we're suffering this morning. These words are very timely. Would you help us, we pray today, to remember that suffering is normal? And uh, perhaps hardest to believe right now is that suffering is beneficial. We thank you, Lord, that it's a battle that you will help us with. You will not forsake us because you sent Jesus. You've proven once and for all how you're such a faithful God. Help us, O Lord, to arm ourselves with the proper attitude about suffering. Help us to remember our new identity. Help us to remember that there is a judgment day coming. Help us to think first of the needs of others. And Father, above all, help us to remember the cross where you provided a lamb for the burnt offering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.